This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation, and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there's nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin-A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. I mean, Jello doesn't look anything like an animal carcass. You know, it's kind of soft and sweet and flavorful, and the gelatin itself doesn't look anything like something prohibited. It doesn't look like a pigskin or, or beef bones or anything like that. I can't argue with that. Jello does not look like an animal carcass, for sure. But so what? Well, the problem is, does Jello possibly look like a thing that you can't eat if you keep kosher? If I didn't know that gelatin comes from an animal, it just looked like dessert to me. Oh, I see. Well, I didn't even know that you can't eat gelatin if you keep kosher. It's actually even more complicated than that. That's right. This episode is all about kosher law, or really, what happens when an ancient set of religious food rules collides with the modern industrial food system. And why that matters to anyone who eats in America, not just Jews. You're listening to Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Nicola Twilley, and I am a know-nothing Gentile. And I'm Cynthia Graber, and I'll be your Jewish guide this week. I I grew up keeping kosher, so I have a little firsthand experience. The term means fit and proper, and these are rules articulated uh, in the five books of Moses, the basis of uh, the Jewish religion. Roger Horowitz wrote the new book, Kosher USA, How Coke Became Kosher and Other Tales of Modern Food. It's the story of how science got involved in this ancient religious food practice. Well, science, history, and food is what we're all about. But for those of us like me who know next to nothing about kosher law, what is it exactly? These are rules that the Jews were supposed to follow to show that they would follow God's laws. And to be a Jew and to be one that God would accept as a Jew, you need to follow these these laws. So that's the origin of kosher law. It's rooted in antiquity, two, three thousand years before the birth of Christ. And they are then articulated over the course of several millennia to be usable in the homes of of Jews. So the first most basic set of rules comes from the Torah, which is also the first five books of the Christian Bible. I mean, there's some long sections in the Torah 
which tell you what animals are or are not acceptable to eat. And that's the biggest section of the Torah. Then there are some, some other phrases that are relatively limited and then have to be interpreted for their meetings. Leviticus, any animal that has a cloven hoof that is completely split into double hooves and which brings up its cud, that one you may eat. But, but, but you shall not eat among those that bring up the cud and those that have a cloven hoof, the camel, the hare, and the hyrax, whatever that is. I'm paraphrasing, but basically all unclean. And the pig, because it has a cloven hoof that is completely split but will not regurgitate its cud, it is unclean for you. You shall not eat of their flesh and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Weasel, mouse, toad, starling, hedgehog, chameleon, lizard, locust, snail, all also, by the way, off limits. And just in case you are wondering, you cannot cook a kid, a baby goat, in its mother's milk. That doesn't sound like much of a problem in daily life. But here's the thing. That one sentence is also the reason why I never ate a cheeseburger at home or why my Orthodox friends couldn't eat ice cream after finishing up a chicken dinner. Because those simple statements in the Torah, they got elaborated on a lot by lots and lots of rabbis. Over the millennia, rabbis debated the laws in the Torah again and again, all Jewish laws, not just the dietary ones. And they wrote millions of words on the topic, adding new interpretations and nuances and commentary. And those interpretations, they became law too. Some of these debates happen because not everything is covered in the Torah. Like, the Torah doesn't get specific about which fish you can eat. It just says fish have to have fins and scales. So, for instance, the Torah never details whether you can eat sturgeon. The thing about a sturgeon is the scales are so deeply embedded that you can't scrape them off. So are they actually scales? And Jews have been debating that for literally a millennium. Then, of course, Jews continue to move around and new things happen. New foods are discovered, new challenges come to the fore as to what observance should mean. And a lot of these debates and laws exist because of an idea that you need to provide a fence around the Torah. Basically, to make sure that you don't break any of these Torah laws by accident, these extra, even more stringent and super detailed rules are added into the mix by rabbis over the centuries. Things like that cheeseburger prohibition. To make sure that we never accidentally cook a kid in its mother's milk, now we can't eat meat and milk together at all. There's more. To be extra sure that they don't cook a kid in its mother's milk, observant households have two sets of dishes, one for meat and one for dairy. That might sound weird to a lot of you, but it's super normal to me. And also, you're not supposed to just clear the table of meat and then have some milk. You have to wait. And that raises more questions. And before you know it, you have more fences. And Jews in different parts of the world put those fences in slightly different places. Like, okay, how long should you wait after eating meat before you consume any dairy? Sephardic Orthodox Jews are supposed to wait six hours. German Orthodox Jews tend to wait three hours. And the Dutch are good to go after just one hour. And a lot of it goes down to the kind of dispersion of the Jews and the different practices that result in Jews being in very different places and at a time in our civilization when communication was, was often uncertain and travel was very hard to, to engage in. So there are lots of rules, but there's also endless debate and discussion. We used to think about the law as the law. Well, you know, the law in Jewish law is this kind of argumentation among the rabbis. They take these rulings and they say, what about this and what about that? And suppose we did this and suppose we did that. So this is, this is Jewish law. And the food law is a subset of this extraordinarily rich tradition, very powerful intellectual tradition of understanding the world, the, the actual prosaic world around us and how deciding whether this piece of flesh is acceptable 
to eat fits with the Talmud and the Torah and God's idea about how Jews should behave on this earth. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Why do these rules actually exist? Why all this fuss about hedgehogs and sturgeon? <laughs> That's one of the uh, the great questions which people have been writing about for centuries. You know, it's tempting to read back from our concerns now and attribute that to the ancients about uh, about the food laws. You know, our concerns for cleanliness and safety and, and, and all those sorts of things. Right. I was taught growing up that there were health benefits, like that pork had a higher risk of trichinosis. But we learned in our pig episode from last summer, that's not the case. Super interesting episode, if I do say so myself. You should go listen to it if you haven't already. Growing up, I also learned that just like you might hear today about oysters making people sick, there was a higher risk of getting sick from eating shellfish in the past, too. And maybe that's why shellfish aren't kosher. But really, Roger says health didn't have much to do with it. There may have been some instances where certain animals just looked unclean. Well, yes. I mean, I mean, the, the rule against eating animals that are already dead, that are not ritually slaughtered, uh, yes, there could well be elements there that you can attribute to this. I and mean, you shouldn't pick up, you know, roadkill. Probably not good for you. But I'm always wary of reading back into the ancient world what we're worried about today. A very different world than very different set of concerns. It's unclear whether there were any health benefits to keeping kosher in the ancient world. Any that there were were probably just bonus. But all the laws of Judaism, not just the laws of kashrut, these generally fit into what I'd say are two main camps. The first important one is to help people live a moral life. Like the idea of not cooking a kid in its mother's milk, it was likely seen as immoral to cook a baby animal in its mom's milk. That's one reason. And there's another big one. I think you need to try to imagine yourself a Jew in you know, the ancient world or a Jew in the Islamic world or a Jew in the Christian world to try to answer that question. And ultimately, I think the reason for these laws was keeping Jews together as a nation in a world in which Jews were a tiny minority and often a persecuted minority. And by persecuted, this didn't mean that you were treated badly or discriminated against. It meant that you might be killed or raided or destroyed or property seized. It was about creating a community there above all. The rules around wine are a great example of how kosher laws create community. Wine's not kosher if anyone but an observant Jew has helped make it. This is deliberately to obscure and hinder fraternization between Jews and those mother religions and to, and to inhibit intermarriage and assimilation of Jews into societies that are hostile uh, to Judaism or at best tolerant of Judaism. So I think that's, that's what's at the core of, the, of these laws. It's about the coherence of Jews into a society, into a civilization that can exist hundreds, thousands of years of being a minority. It's clever. I mean, if you can't sit around a table and break bread with people who aren't Jewish because they eat foods and drink wine that you're not allowed to eat and drink, well, it's harder to get to know them, and so it's less likely that you'll marry them. So there's a logic there, even if at first some of the rules, like about camels or starlings, they sound crazy. But my next question is, how on earth are you supposed to remember all of this? It seems like just going grocery shopping would be like sitting an exam. I mean, there's some things that, that, that weren't an issue that you could just go eat. I mean, vegetables and grains and things like that were not an issue. But if you, were, if you had a question, you went to your local rabbi. 
and the rabbi would poskin. He would he would rule and tell you, you know, if that chicken was kosher or not. And this worked just fine in traditional food systems. Imagine you're in uh, Germany in the 1850s and where you're getting your food from. Um, it's probably overwhelmingly from your local area. If you're getting beef, you're getting it from, you know, local slaughterhouse, bread from your local bakers, cheese from your, your milk shops that are there. There's no branded goods. You know, you don't have cereal. So the food system is overwhelmingly a local food system. There's, there's manufacturing, of course, but it's overwhelmingly, you know, within a certain, a certain area. So in that situation, the ability of the local rabbi to determine whether it's kosher is feasible. Because he can go there and look. He can investigate whether these practices are, are, are okay. So when in doubt, who are you going to call? Not Ghostbusters, unfortunately. You're going to call the local rabbi. Until the age of Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, things go better with Coca-Cola. It's the 1920s. Coca-Cola is huge. And Rabbi Tobias Geffen is an Orthodox rabbi in Atlanta where Coke is made. It's the refreshing he suspects that there is uh, glycerin in uh, Coca-Cola in the mid-1920s. And he goes to the chief chemist of the state of Georgia to determine this, who tests it and verifies that, yes, indeed, it has glycerin in it. Jewish people in the 1920s who want to treat their kids to a Coke, they don't know this. And they probably don't even know what glycerin is or where it comes from. But they want to be like everybody else and enjoy a Coke. So they do what they've always done, and they ask their rabbi to make a ruling. The assimilating generations want to participate in American culture. Is it kosher? Can they get a hot dog and a Coke if they go to Coney Island? What do they do if they want to go to the theater? Can they have a popcorn? Uh, how about ice cream? Can you have an ice cream cone? It's all around you, this industrial food, if you're in urban areas in the mid-20th century, and that's where, that's where the Jews overwhelmingly live. A rabbi knows the rules for kosher law, but there's a problem now. Why would a rabbi know what glycerin is? But to make a ruling, he needs to. All of a sudden, rabbis need to understand chemistry and engineering and the complicated ways that industrial food gets made. And they really need to know what glycerin is. Glycerin, I should say, is widely used in our food system, was and is. And Coke is using it for, what I believe they're using it for, is to disseminate the flavor throughout the liquid. Glycerin is used throughout uh, soft drinks. All sorts of foods have glycerin because it has a property of taking a flavor and pushing it into the, into the uh, molecules throughout a particular drink. If you've ever tried to make sure that the sugar in your iced tea dissolves and goes all through the drink, you'll, you'll understand the problem, that you can put a flavor in a drink and it can sink to the bottom. Glycerin has a wonderful property of forcing it to disseminate throughout a liquid. But it's also widely used in ice cream. It's widely used in, in, in cake icings. Um, it's used in lots of products. That's what glycerin does. But here's the big question. What is glycerin? Where does it come from? Well, the problem with glycerin is that glycerin originates in animal fats. And mostly pigs, which, as we know, are not kosher. So Geffen goes in to visit Coke, and he's actually on top of this issue. And it's Geffen who I believe is the first rabbi to take science seriously and to use science to understand the nature of products. That's why it's a big deal that Geffen went to a chemist for the information, as Roger stressed earlier. Geffen's pretty clear that he doesn't think glycerin is kosher, but other rabbis, they don't agree with him. Because there's a loophole. In the endless debates and rules and fences around the Torah, there are also some leniencies. These are like handy little get-out clauses to help Jews negotiate the real world. 
rather than the ideal one in the rule books. This particular loophole that the rabbis who are arguing with Geffen, the loophole they want to apply to coke and glycerin is called bitul b'shishim. And bitul b'shishim says uh, is nullification in the in the sixtieth, which means that if it's less than one sixtieth of the proportion, then it can be nullified. This is really widely available in the you know early modern world to deal with problems in the kitchen, to deal with problems of not being completely sure if a food was 100% kosher. So, I mean, the classic example is, you know, the, the you're making a stew, beef stew. Accidentally, you drop a bit of butter in the stew. Of course, meat and milk is a prohibited combination. Does that mean you have to toss out the stew? And, you know, the answer is no. If the piece of butter is less than 160th of the portion of the of the stew. The idea behind it is, of course, it has to be accidental. Uh, it's not deliberate. It's not something part of your practice. It's a way of addressing a mistake. Now, this, uh, this works, I think, reasonably well in a pre-industrial era. But when you have industrial food in which there are so many minute ingredients, it creates an enormous challenge uh, for kosher law. The rabbis who think glycerin is fine say the amount of glycerin is so tiny that it's way less than one sixtieth of the final bottle of soda. So they say you can use Betul to say it's kosher. And Geffen says, not so fast. Put the Coke back down. Geffen's ruling is a landmark because he says no. He says that if, if, if it's introduced deliberately in this kind of mass production industry, if it's essential to the creation of a product, it can't be nullified. Nullification is only for mistakes. It's not if you're doing something deliberately in large quantities. Luckily for Jews headed out to Coney Island or the local ball game, there is a solution. Glycerin can also be made from vegetable fat. Phew. And now Coke is kosher. Everyone can relax and enjoy the wonders of 20th century America. But the point is, this whole business of whether Coke is kosher or not, what it's really about for rabbis and observant Jews in 20th century America is, it's not so simple to understand what's in processed foods. Suddenly you need science to understand whether Coke is fit and proper for a Jewish person to drink. This is a completely new development in Jewish history. And the rabbis step up and they solve the Coke question. But it's like whack-a-mole. There are so many new and exciting products arriving in American grocery stores in the mid-20th century, like Jell-O. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. You know that feeling when you try a new food for the first time and your mouth experiences these brand new flavors and sensations? It's like, wow, I didn't even know a food could do that. This happened to me when I went on this amazing trip to the northern tip of Queensland in Australia. We were so far north that we were off the country's electrical grid. And we were staying on a banana farm where they grew dozens and dozens of different kinds of bananas. In the morning, I woke up to a basket full of some of the most bananas bananas you can imagine. Red ones that were super soft and sweet like raspberries, and small finger-sized ones that were sort of floral, and even blue ones that tasted exactly like vanilla ice cream. Life's too short to pass up extraordinary experiences. And if you're ready to take your next big food adventure, go there with Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why Milk? 
Dairy Milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I mean, Jello doesn't look anything like an animal carcass. You know, it's kind of soft and sweet and flavorful. And the gelatin itself doesn't look anything like something prohibited. It doesn't look like a pigskin or, or beef bones or anything like that. So if you're using your eyes and you're using your nose and you're using essentially your, your five senses to determine if jello or some gelatin desserts are acceptable, it sure looks acceptable. It doesn't look anything like one of the products prohibited in, in, in the Torah. But if you investigate the science of it that's behind it, then you find out that it's more complicated. I'm going to make a crazy statement here. I do not see anything complicated. If you know anything about gelatin, you know it's an animal product. I always assumed Jell-O wasn't kosher. But until the 1950s, gelatin desserts, and even specifically Jell-O, they were considered kosher by even the most orthodox Jews. It has to do with bones. And, and the, the, the complicated story is, can bones of non-kosher animals become kosher. And there is a whole long rabbinic tradition which says, well, they could be, because the prohibitions against eating animals refers to only those parts which are edible. So how can a prohibition against eating a prohibited animal continue? How can it be applied to a part of the animal that isn't edible? Do you follow me? Slightly confusing, but yes, we do. Roger is saying bones are not edible. They're not flesh. And the Torah only addresses edible parts of the animal, so anything you make from bones isn't prohibited. This bone loophole, it goes back to 12th century France and a problem with honey. Honey often has bees' legs caught in it by accident. Bees are insects, and insects are pretty much unclean for Jews. So medieval French Jews were anxious. Could they eat honey or no? And their rabbi came up with a workaround. Bees' legs are part of its skeleton, not its flesh. And like Roger explained, Leviticus just says, of their flesh you may not eat. It doesn't mention bones. So maybe bones are okay. And so that meant Jews in medieval Europe, where there wasn't cheap cane sugar, that meant they could eat honey, despite any bee bones that got caught in it. This whole bone loophole... It was an adaptation that allowed medieval Jews to get by in a world without a lot of other sweeteners. But it remained controversial outside of the context of honey. There is actually a quite a, a lively rabbinic debate about whether the bones are prohibited. And uh, it's not clear. There are different traditions and arguments inside this tradition of whether bones are prohibited. But basically, in early 20th century America, Jews relied on this bone loophole to enjoy some nice gelatin dessert after dinner. Rabbis believe fairly in the 20s and the 30s, that it was bones that were the source of gelatin. And then, in 1947, the Townsend Engineering Company in Des Moines, Iowa, developed the world's first mechanized pork skinner. 
Skins are also a great source of gelatin, and it only takes one day to prep them to extract that gelatin, whereas bones have to be soaked in lime for a month. So now all of a sudden with this machine to do the fussy business of skinning the pig, making gelatin from pig skins is much more economical than making it from beef bones. Suddenly, 50-70% of the source of gelatin are pig skins, and that's different. There's no question that the pig is prohibited. And how can you have acceptance of a gelatin that originates in pork products? This seems like it should be obvious. After it becomes clear that gelatin comes from pig skins, there is no way that jello can be kosher. But more and more Jews are enjoying it, and the rabbis are, I have to admit to my surprise, they're mostly approving it because of another loophole. This one is called panim chadashot, and it's basically the idea that the original substance has been so completely transformed into something new that it's no longer recognizable. This concept originates from a uh, spice called musk that was widely used in the, in the early modern world that originates from an animal and some blood and then becomes dried and uses a flavoring and, you know, it's used. Is it kosher? Is it acceptable given its origins in blood and given its origins of an animal? And the answer was yes, it is, because it's obviously no longer blood. It's been transformed by a natural process. Basically, musk was very popular, again, in medieval Europe. It's this oily excretion, and rabbis thought it came from the blood of an animal, and Jews aren't allowed to eat blood. So how could Jews use it? Fortunately for them, a 12th century Catalan rabbi comes to the rescue and says that musk is different, so different, so transformed from its origins in the blood of this animal, that it's actually something new altogether. So the pro-Jello rabbis in this debate say that the animal bones and skin have been completely transformed in the process of making gelatin. That wibbly-wobbly jello, it's no longer remotely the same thing as pig skin. But not everyone's happy with this decision. There's a key figure in this whole story, Abraham Goldstein. An irascible man, cantankerous, blunt, in sort of a early mid-20th century way, uh, a chemist by trade, deeply committed to, uh, to kosher law, who gets very angry at the rabbis for not understanding science. He himself is engaged in some level of manufacturing. Uh, he has a soap business. And so he knows where stuff comes from. And Abraham does not buy that it's okay for Jewish people to eat a dessert whose key ingredient comes from an unclean animal. This creates a huge debate. On the one hand, General Foods is marketing Jell-O as kosher with great delight. Lots of rabbis are supporting the company. There are radio ads, ads in Yiddish newspapers. Jack Benny is endorsing Jell-O on his show. The Jell-O program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston and Phil Harris and his orchestra. On the other hand, Abraham Goldstein and those in his camp are working hard to combat Jell-O's kosher status. And then, the anti-Jell-O gang, they get their opportunity. In the early 1960s, a confectionery company comes to them and says, hey, is it okay if we start making a gelatin-based marshmallow chocolate? And these anti-Jell-O rabbis decide to use this as a test case. The fate of Jell-O is about to be decided. Not surprisingly, the anti-Jell-O rabbis ruled that these chocolate-covered marshmallows and gelatin are not kosher. The Panim Chadashot loophole of transformation does not apply. They argue that musk is made by a natural transformation, but gelatin, it's a mechanical and chemical one. In theory, gelatin could be kosher if it were made entirely from kosher cows, but jello wasn't. Jello itself didn't care. It didn't wobble. <laughs> Unlike Coke, it didn't change in any way in response to this ruling. From a business point of view, it was just so much more expensive to make gelatin any other way, and so Jell-O basically became off-limits for Orthodox Jews. 
And for those who just couldn't imagine living without its wibbly-wobbly delights, rival, more expensive kosher gelatin brands grew up that did use kosher cows or fish rather than pigskin. This is a bigger deal than just whether you can make a jello fruit mold for dessert in the 1960s and 70s, because it has a huge impact on what foods can be considered kosher in the modern food system. You can see in these two stories, Coke and Jell-O, there are major leniencies that Jews have used for centuries that they just can't use anymore. That idea of a tiny bit of food not spoiling the batch, that was fine for a mistake in your stew, but not for industrial Coke that was using a tiny amount of glycerin on purpose. And now with the Jell-O ruling, it was fine to use this transformation loophole for a natural product, but not when companies are deliberately turning trafe animal byproducts into food additives. There were no more leniencies in the modern food system. If a very lean approach towards ingredients had become prevalent, it would have made it a lot easier to say food was kosher. Manufacturers would not have had to change as many of their uh, ingredients or processes. Uh, the kind of regulation would have been far simpler. And um, you might well have simply not needed the certification organizations because you could have read labels. And the labels would have simply been enough for you know, uh, Jews to determine whether it was it was good or not. You know, it's interesting. It's like in medieval France and Spain, it was okay to have these loopholes because you needed them to eat. But here, amidst the abundance of industrial American food, it was actually not okay to use these loopholes just because you wanted to assimilate and drink Coke and eat Jello like everyone else. And this all leads to the rise of the Hechsher. A Hechsher is a kosher label. Abraham Goldstein is on Team Anti-Jello, and he comes up with this idea of a label. The two stories about Coke and Jell-O, they tell us that ancient loopholes no longer apply, but they also tell us something else. They show us that as the industrial food system is getting started, nobody knows what's in their food because food companies don't have to tell us. That changed slightly when the U.S. government passed a law in 1938 that required packaged foods that were sold nationally to carry labels that stated their principal ingredients. But the funny thing is, those labels didn't really help. Because you might read gelatin on a Jell-O label and not know that it was now made from pig skins. And glycerin is such a tiny ingredient in Coke that it didn't even have to be on the label. But Abraham understands science, so he responds to this new need by putting out a kosher food guide. And it's clear that people are worried about what's kosher and what isn't because they write to him from all over the country. He gets 30 to 40 letters a day from housewives wanting to know, could they buy Campbell's soup or Unita biscuits or Velveeta cheese? And his guide becomes really popular. He understands uh, this level of science, and he sees that this old system of uh, rabbis determining about food uh, without having to refer to science is not going to work, that these food companies are too clever. There's too many ingredients in these foods that have been changed, that are hidden, that the source is not known or even knowable to the rabbis who might just go and look at them. Abraham Goldstein really begins advocating for the creation of larger organizations to oversee a kosher certification, a kosher law. In the 20s, he is the key person behind the creation of the Orthodox Union. The Orthodox Union, it's actually the Union of Orthodox Rabbis, it's a powerful force in all aspects of Orthodox Jewish life. And Abraham... He isn't a rabbi, but he persuades them to launch a kosher certification program in the 1920s. 
He even negotiated the first deal with Heinz in 1923. He even comes up with the symbol for that Hersher, the U inside an O, because he didn't want something that looked too obviously Jewish, given the anti-Semitism at the time. And kosher certification goes on to become big business. Right. I mean, you now really have a kosher oligopoly, which is to say, you know, four or five large organizations that dominate the kosher certification field. Those five organizations certify more than 80% of the kosher food in the U.S. today, and it's now an insanely huge percentage of the food we all eat. Between a third and a half of all processed food in an American supermarket will have a kosher label on it. It adds up to more than $200 billion of the country's estimated $500 billion in annual food sales. Which is kind of amazing. Roughly 2% of the population is Jewish, and only a small fraction keep kosher. That's a tiny percentage of the American public. So why in the world did this Heksher business explode? This is all the more mysterious because it costs money to get that kosher certification. Like, quite a lot of money. Businesses pay for kosher certification, and depending on the size of the business and how complicated it is, that can cost anywhere from a few hundred dollars to a few hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right, because there are inspectors all over the world, wherever all the ingredients are made, and they have to be paid for their work. And that's not even taking into account the costs on the industrial side. The company might have to make different foods on different days. They might have to raise certain pieces of equipment to a certain temperature to kosher them. They might have to separate out particular ingredients from one another. They might have to source more expensive ingredients. It all adds up. Again, why bother? Well, there's a couple of different paths into that decision to become certified kosher. One is that you want to enter the, the Northeast market for food. And there's a lot of Jews there, there's a lot of observant Jews, and you don't want to have any, any inhibitions to the expanding sales of your product. One of the great examples of that is Coors Beer that decides in the 90s to move from being a you know, Rocky Mountain, West Coast beer to being a national beer. And they want to enter the New York market, and they get kosher certified because they don't want to have any opposition or any, any restrictions on who they're selling their, their, their beer to. It just opens up another market, eliminates a barrier. And then there's the fact that getting rid of those loopholes, the whole thing with Jell-O and Coke, that made the whole kosher system more stringent. And that had an unexpected side benefit. One thing that I argue, though, is that the, the more stringent approach had an entirely unintended consequence, which was enormously positive for kosher food. And that was the appeal of kosher food to non-Jews. For Muslims who want to make sure there's no pork products in there, to vegetarians who want to be able to you know, eat kosher parv. Kosher parv means it contains neither milk nor meat. I don't think kosher food would have been anywhere as attractive to these groups as uh, if it had been lenient. If, again, if kosher law accepted gelatin, glycerin, meat-based glycerin, and other kinds of derivatives of um, various animal products, some Muslims would not have accepted it as being uh, a surrogate for halal requirements. Certainly vegetarians would be unlikely to adopt neutral kosher food if they thought that it could have traces of, of materials that derive from animal products in there, so on and so forth. So there's a, there's a wonderful sort of irony here is that the stringent approach makes kosher food more attractive to non-Jews. There's another factor, too. Roger says that nearly half of all the food eaten in America is eaten in an institutional setting rather than at home. The military, prisons, schools, cafeterias, but also chain hotels and restaurants. And many of those institutions rely on the same three big food service companies, Aramark, Sodexo, and the Compass Group. Part of what producers are making food for is not you and me. 
but other institutions, food service providers, institutional distributors, you know, the, the army, the uh, prison systems, the school systems. And these institutional providers, they definitely prefer kosher to non-kosher if it's a, a similar price because part of the populations that they're serving involve observant Jews or other proportions of the population that would like to eat kosher food, such as Muslims. Great example, food, you know, something like Sodexo. If they're supplying um, salad dressing, all right, they sell a lot of salad dressing. Some people who buy their salad dressing want kosher salad dressing. So if you're going to create, say, an oil and vinegar dressing that you're going to sell, you want it to be kosher. Because you don't want two oil and vinegar dressings, you want one oil and vinegar dressings. Inventory control, sales, all sorts of reasons you just want one. So there are all these pressures in the food system towards standardization that now work in the favor of kosher food in many, many places. It's really a remarkable development. And there's yet another reason for the popularity of these hechshers, and that's that people just don't trust the industrial food system. In a weird way, hechshers have become shorthand for some non-Jews that a kosher-labeled package of food is trustworthy, that someone else is watching out for them. Like in this Hebrew National hot dog ad from when I was a kid. They say we can add meat byproducts. We don't. They say we can add meat fillers. We can't. We're kosher and have to answer to an even higher authority. And the end result of all of this is that more than 9 out of 10 kosher-certified products that are bought in America are being bought by someone who isn't an observant Jew. I mean, my mouthwash is kosher. Some of that is clearly accidental. I'm sure, Nikki, that you were not looking for a hechsher on that mouthwash. But for all those reasons, vegetarians and Muslims and people overall concerned about their food, a lot of customers are looking for a hechsher. So that's why kosher certification is such big business. It's had a huge effect on what we eat. But it's had an equally big effect on the practice of Judaism. It's cut out some of that debate that was so much a part of Jewish life. So you have a set of standards that are much more across the board than probably, you know, 18th century Europe you know, would have had. This is driven in large part by the link with industrial food, because industrial food manufacturers don't want to have competing notions of, you know, kosher law. They want the one kosher law. Just tell us what we have to do and we'll do it. So there's a real relationship between the certification of kosher products that are industrially made and the pressures of that industrial system on kosher law. It's a reciprocal relationship and it changes kosher law. And this whole development has shaped more than just kosher law. It's literally helped shape Judaism in America. Take the more liberal conservative Judaism. That's how I grew up. They had hechshers too. But the orthodox hechshers basically won because big companies wanted to deal with one type of certification. And they wanted the most stringent one so that everyone could eat their products. After all, people in my synagogue would be willing to eat food with a conservative hechsher or an orthodox one. But orthodox Jews, they'd likely only eat food with the orthodox one. But that trend towards the more stringent label, that meant the Orthodox got to reap the major financial benefit of the Hechsher system, too. Right. Not only did the Orthodox interpretation of what was kosher become the final word on what was kosher, but all that money that those companies pay for certification, all of that goes to Orthodox Jewish organizations, too. And they use it to promote Orthodox Judaism by funding youth programs and so on. Roger writes in his book that it's led to a real renaissance of Orthodox Judaism. So that's kind of interesting to me as a liberal conservative Jew, you know, who comes out the winner and who gets the cash. But Nikki, why would this matter to you? Well, yeah, I'm not particularly invested in the difference between these different Jewish traditions, for sure. But what is fascinating is what kosher labeling tells us about the entire industrial food system. Like, 
It doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or not. What researching this episode showed me is that you really can't read labels and expect to actually understand what's in your food. Right. My family, like many more liberal families, we just read the label when we wanted to figure out if something was kosher or not. I had no idea that I, well, that I had no idea what any of these products were or where they came from. Also, the other thing the popularity of the Hersher tells us is that overall, people don't trust the industrial food system. Yeah, the fact that all these non-Jewish people are buying kosher-labeled food because they just want someone to have watched over how it was produced. I mean, they don't care who switches on the factory equipment on the Sabbath, but they're reassured by the thought that someone has actually followed all the ingredients that go into their candy bar from start to finish. But they shouldn't be reassured, not necessarily. You know, I think in a lot of cases, uh, kosher-certified food is no better than it was before it was kosher-certified. Because, of course, if you think about it, kosher certification has nothing to do with the kind of values and ingredient sourcing issues that, like, I care about. And the origins of kosher certification, if you will, was for industrial food. And it's really in the industrial food system where the kosher certification flourishes in the large firms that can afford the regulatory apparatus that's involved, the fees that are involved. It is not something that is necessarily tied to the kind of local food production or the kind of artisanal food production that is popular uh, today. So you have a curious sort of opposition there. Roger's point is a kosher Oreo is still an Oreo. It's not any more ethical. It's not any more environmentally friendly. It's not any healthier. But, you know, even though the kosher label doesn't necessarily represent values I care about, and even though in some ways it reinforces the industrial food system and shuts off alternatives, I guess in some ways it's also a really interesting example of how a very small group can change a food system. Like we said, the number of Jews who keep kosher is really small, and yet nearly half the products in an average American supermarket are labeled with a hexer. It's something to think about. Something that also holds true today when you have a small state, Vermont, fighting for genetically modified foods to be labeled and kind of forcing that national conversation. Yeah, it's true. Okay, so for regular gastropod listeners, you all will probably know that I don't keep kosher anymore. I mean, you eat conch penis. (laughs) Exactly. But the thing is, I probably look at labels more or think about the origin of food more than I did even when I did keep kosher as a kid. And the story of the Hersher shows that other eaters are also looking at labels. They do want to know something about how their food is made. And some of those labels on food packages today, they can be the ones that might be more of a shorthand for the types of things I want to know now, like the Fair Trade label or the Monterey Bay Aquarium's label for sustainable seafood. Right. And that's where the effort that kosher certification organizations go to and the whole system they've set up to ask detailed questions about how a food is made and follow every last ingredient all the way up the food chain to the point of sending hundreds of inspectors to China? It's impressive. That's something we could all stand to emulate. Thanks this episode to Roger Horowitz. There are so many more fascinating stories in his new book, Kosher USA, How Coke Became Kosher and Other Tales of Modern Food. You should definitely check it out. And in fact, if you are one of our sustaining supporters and give us $5 an episode on Patreon or $9 a month on our website or more, then you will get some little extra snippets we couldn't squeeze into this episode including the curious story of how the sweet kosher wine, Manischewitz, became super popular amongst African Americans. 
Full details on our website where you can also find a link to Roger's book and more information about everything we mentioned in the episode. Including a transcript. A huge thanks to Ari Lebowitz for her help on that. She's a volunteer on the show who's been helping us out a ton behind the scenes. And thanks to all our supporters, particularly Andy Allen, Lori Schultz, Kate Kelly, and Melissa Mosley, who all give it the $10 per month episode or above. We really couldn't do this without you. Thank you. And we'll be back again the week after next with our favorite microbiologist, Ben Wolf, and the science and history behind kombucha. Including some very unbecoming rivalry between your otherwise classy co-hosts as Ben compares our respective kombucha mothers. Nikki's was this really thick, rigid disc that was just like this really thick mass of microbes. <laughs> I was wondering if this has anything to do about our personalities. No, I'm, I am re- I'm reading a lot into it. This is so funny because I was thinking the same thing, but I didn't want to bring it up. <laughs> Till next time. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food. You're probably thinking about food right now, aren't you? Look, we get it. Sometimes a craving is more than a craving. It's a calling that you have to indulge, even if it takes you thousands of miles to get there. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more.